If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we desire to show you our honor and our respect and adoration for you by opening your word, hearing what it says, taking the time to dig into the words and the phrases that you have preserved for us, that we may understand your mind, that we may have the truth that you desire us to have. So, Father, we come this morning asking for your help, that you would grant us understanding. That, Father, you would also give to us a a very strong desire to want our, our minds, our hearts, our attitudes, what we think about, the way we think, to be shaped by your word. We want to become more like your son Christ, and we need to become more like your son Christ. So, Father, we pray that as we continue to expose ourselves to your word, that that transformation will continue unhindered. We know, Lord, that you are here with us even now, because, Father, you have given us in your word your promise that you would always be with us and that you would never forsake us. So, Father, we have a sense of certainty that you are hearing our prayers and that you are hearing our praise of you and that you will answer our prayer as These things that we ask for will bring glory and honor to Christ. So we want to thank you, Lord, even in advance for answering our prayers and our requests. And again, thank you, Lord, for your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 2. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it, is a disgrace, since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, we began to look at this passage last week, and uh, we kind of went through a lot of historical background as to helping us to understand why it was that Paul was addressing 
this issue. And I do believe that he's addressing it for several issues. Uh, but one of the main ones that we covered last week is that when it comes to a man uh, praying or prophesying in a church service or in a worship service with his head covered, it seems from the background material that we looked at that he was mimicking or imitating the way that the pagans were worshiping. And the idea behind that was Caesar was very much about himself. He wanted to kind of, uh, you know, be the preeminent one in every single situation that he found himself in. And when it came to the various religions uh, uh, and the practices, if Caesar showed up, he wanted to be the one who was kind of running things. And so he would take this stance where he would take the, the, uh, some of the extra material in his toga and he would place it over his head. And that was, really, that was not really an act of humility. What that was, uh, he was kind of showing himself to be the one in charge. He was going to be the one who was going to make the sacrifice. He was going to be the one who was going to kind of lead the way in whatever was going on in the worship service. And so he had actually a lot of statues of himself kind of erected throughout the city in that stance. Uh, and the idea there was to try to, uh, the idea was to try to merge this idea of, of the religion and um, the civil authority that he had. And we talked a little bit about dictators and uh, their desire not only for honor and their desire to be powerful, uh, but also their desire to be liked, to be loved, and to be worshipped. Uh, and you always have that. In fact, if you, uh, if you take Revelation like I do, which is literally, uh, you see the Antichrist, and one of the things the Antichrist wants to do, and what he does successfully, is he merges all that together. Not only is he the leader of the world, uh, he then desires worship. And he's able to kind of bring that about. Uh, and uh, so that's, that, that, that was what we looked at last week. But as we continue to look at this passage, it's not an accident that Paul goes into the kind of detail that he goes into in explaining his position and what he wants them to do or how he wants these Corinthians to behave when they worship. He's very concerned about that. He's, you know, he, he's bothered by the way that they pray in, in church. He's bothered by what's going on when they prophesy. He's bothered when they exercise spiritual gifts. He's bothered when they, by the way that they're preaching. And so all these things are going to be addressed, and some of those he addresses here in chapter 11. So one of the things that you can't help but get into is, because of how Paul words all this, is the distinctions in gender, the differences between men and women. And so we need to, to take a look at that. And so as we do that, one of the things we need to keep in mind is this. And this is one of those issues I think is, is, a, is, is a very large problem within Christianity, especially within Western Christianity. And that is the way that we approach the Bible. We don't always give it its due. We don't naturally respect the authority of the Scripture. Now, some of us do, but it's in varying degrees. Some of us have the idea that whatever the Bible commands, I'm going to do that. And that's great. We, we all want to be on the same page with that. But the Bible is a book that is so much more than just some commands that's given to us. The way we think about everything is to be shaped by the Word of God. The way that we think about marriage. Not just that marriage is between a man and a woman, even though that's important. The, the inner workings of the relationship between the husband and the wife, we are informed by the Word of God. The way we worship is informed by the Word of God. The way we think about the created order is informed by the Word of God. 
And when it comes to this issue, which has been a big issue now in our country uh, for several years now, when it comes to gender, we need to be informed by the Word of God. It is to shape our thinking. And so that's what we want to make sure that we're doing, that we approach the Word of God and that we as believers recognize that the Word of God is to shape our thinking and that we are to base our thinking and our understanding of whatever truth is. Now, when I say that, I don't mean we don't know what truth is. We know what truth is, but whatever the truth is about any particular issue, we always want to make sure that whatever it is that we are believing, uh, that it does not go contrary to what the Word of God says. So it is really the authority then for every aspect of our life, for not only what we think and what we think about, but even the way that we think. Uh, just so that you know, every time, and I believe this with all my heart, every time you use logic in any kind of an argument, you are doing that to the glory of God. Because God is a God of logic. Logic begins with God. That is the way that God thinks, and he's created us to think in that way. One of the things that uh, is very disturbing to me today, and at times unnerving, is that when it comes to many different kinds of issues, which would include political issues, and, uh, but that's not what it's limited to, you will sometimes have encounters with individuals or read articles by individuals where they've just thrown logic right out the window. In fact, you, may be, you, you might even be thinking as you read it, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, when you make that statement, that doesn't make sense. What you're saying is, is that's, that's not logical. There's, an, there's inconsistency, whether it's they're being inconsistent in one thing or inconsistent in many things. When we approach the Word of God, we do so thinking logically, and God has communicated to us in that way. So when it comes to the whole gender thing, and individuals say, well, you know, I have the right to think whatever I want to think, well, kind of. In one sense, because we live in America, yeah, you, you can think whatever you want to think. But as beings who, create, who are created in the image of God, who owe everything, including their ongoing existence, to God, we don't have the right to think whatever we want to think if what we think goes contrary to the truth that he's given to us. That would then be wrong to do that. And in maybe in many cases, maybe in all cases, it would then be sinful because it's an act of rebellion against God. So a lot of the, you know, you've heard a lot of people talk about, they use this phrase, uh, culture wars and gender wars and all those types of things. Uh, and and you, you know, we may have a lot of thoughts about that. But one of the things that's important when it comes to that is as a believer, remember that you and I do not have, oh, make sure I phrase this right. Maybe this is the right way. We don't have the right to only think in terms of being a Republican or a Democrat or a conservative or progressive. We don't have a right to only think that way because we're Christians. I need to make sure that whatever end of the spectrum I'm on, that I in good conscience can say that what I am thinking and believing is consistent with the scripture. And for a lot of, again, if you're already moving towards a lack of consistency in your logic, then you probably will be able to say that what you believe is, is uh, in line with scripture when it isn't. Uh, and so that, uh, that can become very problematic in our, in our discussions. So when I approach the word of God, what my desire is, is not only just to understand it and to be able to understand it well enough to be able to communicate and explain it, but I want to make sure that, that I'm understanding it so that it will shape the way that I think. So that if I am thinking wrongly, I want to be corrected. I may not like it, 
And there may be some things I really want to hold on to, but I need to be faithful to God in every aspect of my life. And so when it comes to this whole gender thing, uh, that, that's important. And so when it comes to uh, gender in our society, our, our society as a whole, and I'm always speaking, whenever I speak about our society, that doesn't mean every single member, and I'm sure that you know that. But our, and, and a lot of times what we think society is thinking, it may not be everything society really is thinking, it's just what's being communicated to us through the news and that type of thing. So, you know, you have to take all those types of phrases with a grain of salt. But it does seem that our society as a whole, and our society meaning in America, hates gender distinctions. They want us to move away from gender distinctions. And one of the things that becomes clear just reading through 1 Corinthians 11 is the gender distinction is being made quite clear because it's used over and over again, the male and the female, the wife and the husband, or the woman and the man. That's used over and over and over again. So specifically, our contemporary American culture does hate any indication that there are certain things that men should do and that women should not do. And so before we get into all the details, just remember that, we want to, that we're basing everything that we are thinking on on what Scripture actually teaches us. So we don't want to go beyond what the Scripture says, but we don't want to cut the Scripture short in its reach into our everyday life and our everyday thinking. Many of you are aware that uh, uh, one, of the, one of the leading reasons why the English Standard Version was brought about was because of the difficulties with not the NIV, but the TNIV. And the reason why that became such a big deal was the New International Version, which is again, it's, it's what they call a dynamic equivalency kind of translation. It's not word for word. It's the most conservative of all of them, and it's pretty good. There's, there's not much really wrong with it. But it's owned, but it's copyright is owned by a company that's not Christian. Uh, it's owned by, I believe, Zondervan, and Zondervan's not a Christian company. They used to be at one time, but uh, that's no longer the case. So there was, uh, many, many years ago, there was the development of uh, a translation called, or a revisement of that called, Today's New International Version. And so a lot of individuals complained to the company, saying that's going to be confusing. We don't like that because it just, if somebody who's just not paying attention, or maybe a new believer, they just see the letters NIV and don't really see the T before the NIV, that is gonna buy it, and there's a problem with that because the one of the main distinctions between the T NIV and the NIV is the removal of gender distinctions. Where Jesus is not the Son of God, he's the child of God. Uh, mankind is replaced by humans, and it just kind of goes from there, and it's a mess. And so as a result of that, and I won't get into all the other details, but as a result of that, a group of, of uh, scholars then got together and encouraged a lot of other group of scholars to come together and work on another English translation that would read as well as the NIV for today that would be a word-for-word -word translation and that's the ESV. And so that's, you know, if you notice when we, when we go back to having Bibles in the pews, <laughs> uh, they're all ESV. And the reason, for, the main reason for that is the ability for the uninformed, the individual who may not be churched or may not be familiar with the Bible, they can pick it up and we have good confidence that when they read it, they're reading the Word of God and they can understand it. You know, the, the King James is archaic. It's a good translation, but it's archaic. And if you're not familiar with the King James, it can be very, very difficult to work through. Uh, and we just don't want to add that frustration in the life of an individual. 
So the cultural war and the gender wars even have gotten in the church in that way. And we're very familiar with denominations that have kind of gotten caught up into all of that by removing those distinctions and it then begins to lead to other difficulties and decisions uh, that are not good. So what we need to remember then also, we go back, you've heard me use this phrase before, remember that Genesis and the, basically the first 10 chapters of Genesis gives us, gives to us as believers our meta-narrative. The meta-narrative is an overarching story that basically explains reality and how we understand it. It explains the nature of reality. And what we see there then in, this, in our meta-narrative, which is a, it's, it's a true story that we have there in the book of Genesis, is that gender is God-made. It's not man-made. Man did not make up male and female. God did. He, he created specifically male and female through all the, the animal species. And then as he made man in his image, he did the same thing. He made male and female, and he made that distinction. That distinction goes so deep that we, that we have learned through the years that there are chromosomal differences between us. And I've even heard... Uh, and because I'm not sure I would be able to understand the medical books that talk about these things. But when it comes to your internal organs, the doctor needs to know if you're male or female when he's working on you. Whether it's your heart or your lungs or your liver, because there are differences. Even though it's all the same in a sense, there are some differences and they need to know. And so that's not an accident. Uh, that is all done by God. So that means then that we as Christians need to develop a biblical view of masculinity and femininity. And there's, there was a group that was around for a long time where they continue to have uh, pastors and academics who would write articles uh, uh, for, this, uh, for the uh, Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And they did a lot of great work in thinking through this issue to help the church, to help Christians think through this issue. Uh, and so if you're interested or you want to read some of those things, they're not outdated. Uh, because it's based on what the Word of God has to say. And they might be able to help you think through some of these things. What we need to make sure that we do as Christians is that we cannot allow culture or a culture that has rejected God and has rejected His Word to teach us what it means to be male or female or whatever they want to add to that. We need to make sure that we stick with it. We need to be stubborn like that. We need to be stubborn about our convictions coming from the Word of God and aligning with the Word of God. And so one of the questions that's raised, one of the issues that's raised when you read many of the essays uh, that are put out or that were put out by that group for the, you know, the Biblical uh, Council for Manhood and Womanhood is understand what is the ultimate purpose in the order of God in relation to gender. And the idea there is that the ultimate purpose for, of males and the ultimate purpose for females uh, is simply this, for the glory of God. Uh, Al Mohler said, he said that many individuals have said this, but I heard a podcast where he said, gender is for the glory of God. Now, we may not have thought of that before. I'm not sure how that works out, but, but everything that God has done is for his glory. And so it is not an accident. So even when it comes to this issue, one of the things that we need to wrestle with, perhaps, is whether you are male or female, you are not that by accident. You are that by the design and the will of God. It is the express will of God if you are a male to act like a male. And it is the express will of God that if you are a female, you act like a female. It's the will of God. That, that's the simple stuff. That's not a gray area. And so we, that needs to be our approach. But what's happened through the years is because 
Churches in general have moved away from the authority of the Word of God. You you will have many families in churches, and the children that they're raising aren't being raised by parents who have this commitment and, and loyalty to what the Word of God has to say, allowing their children, in a sense, to decide things for themselves, which means you're going to allow the world alone to influence them. And then these difficulties that we have, whether it's with homosexuality and those types of issues or all the various types of gender things that people are getting into. I I know there's a lot of letters now uh, to the LGBTQ, et cetera, group. Um, And I think I heard a podcast, Al Mohler said that somebody identified over 80 different genders. I have no idea how that's even possible. Um, But anyway, that's that's out there. And that gender is fluid and those things, and and it's not. Again, if we're going to stick with what the scripture says. So then if we find ourselves in opposition to that, uh, to what the scripture teaches and reveals and demonstrates, then we're in the wrong. And we want to make sure that we uh, align ourselves with that. And remember that one of the most important things about that whole thing is it doesn't matter how you and I feel about it. It doesn't matter. What way we feel is of no consequence. It's what is truth. Husband and wife are having difficulty. And he wants to leave his wife? Yeah, he says, I, I just feel like I don't love her. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You don't leave your wife. Period. It dishonors God. And you, are like, you as a Christian, you need to honor the Lord. Period. That, that's it. There's just no way to get around that. So there are times when the way we feel about things, it gets in the way. So again, we're not saying that on one hand, that it never matters the way you feel. It does. But in the decision-making process, it should carry very little weight. And when it comes to these things, again, it should carry very little weight. So again, all of that is important. So the Corinthian church then basically here is failing to reflect God's created order in what they were doing in worship. They're failing to do that. And so there's a problem. And so Paul is going to begin to um, address those things. Again, as as I've already mentioned, the uh, context of the passage is worship. And I've already mentioned some of the things that Paul is going to to address. So in verse 2, Paul says this. Of, of chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So apparently they've been doing some things well, but not everything. So he kind of starts with the encouragement first. You're not doing everything wrong. Uh, however, when it comes to these things I'm now going to address, there's a problem. So Paul begins by addressing immediately the way they are praying and the way they are prophesying. Now, when the word prophesying is used, sometimes it can be confusing in the scripture. So prophesying is, uh, can be several different things. Uh, number one, it can be when an individual is revealing direct revelation from God. We read about that throughout the Old Testament. The prophets would come along and they would prophesy. Now prophesying didn't always mean they were predicting the future. Though sometimes that would be in there. But they were relating to the people a direct communication from God. God spoke to the prophet and they spoke to the people. That's what that is. Sometimes preaching is called prophesying. And to a degree, that would be accurate. You know, what I'm trying to do is explain to you what the Word of God has said. We believe that this has come from God himself. And so I'm prophesying. I'm, not, I'm definitely not predicting the future. So don't ever ask me to predict the future because I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. In fact, I think what's happened this year has proven to all of us that no one can predict what's going to happen in the future because I don't remember reading anybody predicting this. All right, so nonetheless... Uh, we are declaring, we are, we are giving forth the word of God. 
So sometimes the context will help us to understand uh, what's taking place. And then because remember that the Bible, God never contradicts himself, that rule can help us or that truth can help us to understand what's being said. So since you have clearly in chapter 11, Paul stating that women are prophesying, we know that what he, what he means by prophesying in chapter 11 here is not preaching. Because in other places, he forbids preaching. So in the early church, remember, they only had the Old Testament. And you would have times when the church would get together and God would speak to individuals and they would prophesy. They would get up and they would speak. And so you would have that. And you would have different people praying in church. And, and women were praying in church as well. But what Paul was upset with was the way they were doing it. And I don't mean the words that were coming out of their mouth. It was the way they were dressed. It was the way they were presenting themselves. And that carried a lot of weight. They, they, were, they, were, they were drawing a picture for people to look at, and it wasn't a, the correct picture. They weren't remaining distinctively different from the mess in their culture. And that was dishonoring to God. Paul explains why women should cover their heads when they pray and prophesy, and the, and the explanation that he gives is because it was dishonoring to their husbands. Again, Paul says in verse 3, but I want you to understand. And then he begins to make his, uh, some assertions. So here's one. Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of woman. And some translations would say head of wife, and that would be correct. And God is the head of Christ. So uh, in many of the articles that I read, there's a phrase they use, and it's called a structure of authority. And that's what Paul's kind of getting into, a structure of authority. You know, who is the authority over the church? Well, we know that it's Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Now, here he's talking about individual human beings, and, and he's talking about the two genders. And so he says, when it comes to the man, Christ is the head of the man. And then he's going to later on say that man is the head of the woman. That doesn't mean that Christ isn't the head of the woman, but he's talking about how things are done in an orderly way in the church. Now, keep in mind that when he gets into this, he is not talking about value or worth. He's not demeaning women in any way. And we actually have to, I think, go overboard in really expressing that because the church through the years has done a really bad job with that. As a whole, the church has kind of not treated women always very well. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like the past 10 years. I'm talking the past 200 years. It's not been really good. You know, they, they've been, uh, uh, in some cases, in, in certain countries, or maybe in some denominations, treated as second-class citizens, that type of thing. That's all wrong. It's wrong to do that. Uh, they've been treated as if they were simple-minded, and they couldn't think as well as men. You don't find that in the Bible. All right, so we need to make sure that, that, that we recognize the fault that the church as a whole has had with this, and we need to strive to work to correct that, and at times... We may need to go a little more farther overboard to make sure that someone understands what we're not saying. And, and of course, part of that's because people don't always listen well anyway. I mean, I know I don't always listen well. You know, you think you heard what someone said and you didn't hear what they said because they said something different. So you want to make sure that's important that we really make it clear if we are talking about these kinds of things with individuals that we're communicating clearly. That this still doesn't mean they're going to accept what you say. And it doesn't even mean they want to hear what you have to say. But the bottom line is, is we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can to be clear with this. So Paul is articulating a structure of authority. God is at the top, then Christ, then man, then woman. So a couple of things. Number one, uh, each assertion 
refers to someone being the head of someone else. So Christ is of the male and the male of the female and God of Christ. Uh, the word head here is talking about authority. So Paul is saying that the structure of authority that he is passing on to the Corinthians means that males have authority over females. Now, having authority doesn't mean you're the boss. That's just the wrong inference there, to, to say it that way. Uh, but it does mean, though, there's still a very real authority. So we don't want to diminish that as well. So sometimes there's some tension there that we have to try to figure out uh, and make sure we're communicating things very clearly. And as I've already mentioned, this structure, again, is not a hierarchy of value or a hierarchy of worth. It is not that at all. In fact, we know that Jesus, even though uh, God is the head of Jesus, at the same time, what does Romans say? Paul says in Romans 9, uh, in verse 5, Christ, who is God overall. So he recognizes the Trinity. This is not a denial of uh, the fact that Christ is, in essence, he is God. But when it comes to the structure, we see this, we see this order uh, that's taking place. James Hamilton, he was a professor at, I think, Southwestern, and now he's a professor at Southern Seminary. Uh, he pointed out that just as the father and son are equal in essence, males and females are also equal in essence. And he says that theologians refer to this as ontological equality. Paul says that Jesus is going to surrender the kingdom to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, indicating that Jesus is functionally subordinate to the Father. And so also females are functionally subordinate to males. So that would then mean, practically speaking, in a marriage relationship, if a husband and wife have a disagreement, that's, that disagreement by itself is not necessarily sinful. It's not sinful. It's okay for them to have different opinions. Functionally, she is to submit herself to her husband, but that doesn't mean that he is smarter or knows better. It doesn't mean that. He might even be dumber. I have no women who've said, well, he wanted to have his way, so I let him, <laughs> and I knew what would happen, you know, but I prepared for it, so you know, she's covering for you. But the bottom line is, is that that hasn't always been the case, and even today, it's still not that way. Uh, you'd be, uh, well, maybe you wouldn't be. I mean, it's just amazing uh, in speaking or hearing people talk about their marriage relationships and the way they think about their spouse, especially if they're believers. Now, if they're new believers, oh, I'm going to give them some, you know, uh, uh, a little bit of grace there. But as believers, we need to make sure that we are uh, glorifying God in the way we treat each other and that we are doing it in association with and in submission to what the Word of God has to say. Again, we need to articulate the, the ontological, ontological equality and the difference between that and a functional subordination uh, because there are many who say today that, uh, and I've talked to people who've had this argument, they don't like what Paul says about women, and then they'll say this, because Paul didn't like women. That's why he said what he said. And so I, in, in cases where I've had the ability to have that discussion with an individual, I'll say, well, you still have a problem with that. God preserved what Paul said in his word. So did God make a mistake? Because God preserved that and it's presented to us as if we should be obeying that. And now you want to discount that. And what, they, what people don't always recognize is they're making themselves or their group God's judge. They are determining at that moment what God has really said and what God hasn't said. 
And we as we don't have that right. It's, that's why we refer to this as the, it's the Bible. It's the book. Even though there's 66 books, we take this as one book. It's authoritative. God, this is what God has given to us. I don't decide what the Word of God is. This is the Word of God. I, I must take all of it. So individuals then who want to go into that direction and say that Paul didn't like women and that's why he was demeaning to them and whatnot are just wrong. They're wrong foundationally uh, because their approach to Scripture is incorrect. So again, men and women are equal in what they are. But again, as we've used before, a sports analogy, we know that when it comes to any kind of team sport, uh, everyone is of, of equal value as human beings, but they have different functions on the team. All right, if you ever coached football, there are some, you know, everyone thinks that these gigantic large men are the only kind of men that play football. Well, you do, you do need some of those big large guys to keep the other big large guys from squashing the little guy who can throw. Because there's not a whole lot of guys like him. If you're like most high school teams, your second string quarterback really can't do a whole lot. And so you need to protect the first string guy. So everybody has their own role. And we might even talk about their value to the team as being greater because there is only one of him, even though we have 10 of these kind of guys. But as human beings and individuals, they're all the same. Their value is the same. And so the way that we function then uh, should not inform us as to our value or our worth as individuals. So again, in terms of what people are, men and women are equal. But in terms of what people do, there are distinct roles. Again, as the scripture says, and God created man in his own image. Image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But again, the Bible also indicates that in what people do, the males have authority because it says in chapter 11, man is the head of the wife or head of the woman or has authority. So, we need, so that's important. Now, we're going to move on, will be today, through what he's saying, but here's something we have to stop and think about for a moment. Because when it comes to all of this gender things that we're talking about, whether it's this that people want to argue about, uh, and move away from it, or whether it's what we would call the confusion that a lot of people have about these things. And because of our society, because of our culture, there are young people, even in Christian families, who are struggling with some of these issues because of the way they feel on the inside. Now, even though I did say at one time, your feelings don't matter, that, that the, the mature believer can embrace that. But those who are non-believers or those who may not be mature yet, they're going to have a hard time with that phrase because we live in a culture that really elevates the way that we feel. And so this confusion then takes on um, uh, a great strength in their lives and really deeply affects individuals. And so there's something that, that I, I want to, uh, to go through with you just briefly that I think will help with this. Because it goes back to the idea that our gender brings us glory to God and that what we are uh, what you are, if you are male or female, you have been created by God to be what you are. So even though you may be confused about maybe why you are a woman or why you are a man, or how does this bring glory to God? I just can't see it. Well, I do believe this. Number one, not only do gender roles bring glory to God, they give meaning to our lives as men and women. And there are a lot of individuals today who are searching for meaning in life. And I believe there's a connection, at least in some cases, maybe in many, between that and some of the confusion, even if it's not their own personal confusion over gender roles, but, but the kind of confusion that's created by the culture we live in, 
We live in a culture that propagates confusion on so many levels, and it really affects people deeply psychologically. When I say that, I just want you to understand something, that many times when I talk about how things affect us psychologically, what that can also mean is it affects us in our soul. Because those two things I believe are the same. So it affects a person very deeply. So, So there's a spiritual issue that's going on there in this struggle that's taking place. I do believe that we can understand ultimate meaning in our lives, but only to a certain point. We, we will never be able to grasp all of it because we are finite beings living in a finite world with finite revelation. But there is, we believe as Christians that there is ultimate meaning to every facet of life and we know that it's related to God and the glory of God in so many ways, but there's a lot of ways we don't quite, we can't really grasp it as to what that is. And so we, we accept that. So, and, and that has a, an effect on how we handle suffering. Maybe the suffering we're talking about is the suffering an individual is going through because of their confusion on all of this. Or it might be suffering that's coming as a result of, uh, of a disease or some other thing that's going on in someone's life. But what enables us to be able to handle all those things is our belief that there is meaning and there is ultimate meaning to our lives and our existence. So let me give you an illustration that I came across reading a book by a psychologist, a Jewish psychologist uh, who is dead now, but he uh, was famous because he survived three uh, different uh, concentration camps or death camps during the Holocaust. And so this illustration reads this way. Let's say, and I've kind of updated it for us today. Let's say an ape is repeatedly injected as part of the process used to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. Although the virtual eradication of COVID-19 in the human race would be very laudable, the outcome, a great outcome, the ape is not able to grasp the meaning of his suffering. It cannot enter into the world of man. The only world in which its suffering is understandable. Likewise, human suffering or human confusion can only be understood from the viewpoint of a world that we as humans may not enter rationally yet. God speaks in Scripture. This serves to demonstrate to us the presence of an ultimate reality in a way that transcends even human reason. And so what we need to recognize is that there are what, what, what we do know in general is what happens with us here and now does make a difference and it matters to God. I know a little bit of what that looks like in the future, but there's a whole lot of it I don't and many don't. But we just know that it does because God exists and God has spoken. Because God has spoken, I know that world exists and I know it's going to be incredible and it's going to be unbelievable and I can't wait to get there. But when it comes to the life that we live now, Our life is filled with certain universals. And another psychologist said that there are three, there's a triad of universal human, a triad of universal human experiences. He says it's pain, guilt, and death. We all experience that. What I think that is incredible is that is exactly what Christ came to bear and to eradicate was all three of those. Jesus Christ came as a man lived as a man and lived perfectly. He dealt with physical, psychological pain, rejection. He experienced the most incredible form of torture 
ever invented by mankind. Our guilt and our sin was placed on him. And this innocent man willingly suffered and then died in our place. But death, which is a human universal, did not have the last word as he was raised again the third day, conquering death. And though you and I, like the rest of the world, are experiencing, will experience, and have experienced pain, guilt, and one day death, we know that we will come out of this victorious because Christ has. And that is why he is the answer to all of these difficulties that people have. So even though we're going through this thing on gender and really trying to make sure we grasp and, and understand what God is saying, remember that for the individual out there who, in whatever way they communicate their confusion, remember that what they need is not to be set straight on the truth about gender. Because what if they did change their mind and believed exactly as you and I believed? What have we accomplished? Not a whole lot. Because the source of all that confusion is their separation from God. They don't recognize that their confusion is, is partially because of their rebellion against God and his word. And so that's why they need the gospel. We can easily think that the gospel has nothing to do with this whole gender thing. It's got everything to do with it. Because it's all tied together to man's rebellion. So yes, we should not just be somehow arrogant and pious and just thank God that maybe we don't suffer from gender confusion. We should be humble and thank the Lord that he's kept us from that because the gospel of Christ was shared with us and we believed in Christ. And we also need to have pity on those who are confused today, who are in the rebellion, maybe screaming and acting out and doing all kinds of things that maybe even be irritating. But they, they don't know Christ. And it's the message of Christ that they need. And remember, we go back to what Paul said at the beginning of the chapter when he said, imitate me. Remember what, what the context is in that imitation. So evangelize the world. To evangelize all that we meet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness and grace and kindness. Father, we thank you for the gospel that has made us whole, though we still have a long ways to go. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you loved us enough to send your son, Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with a great love and a burden for other people. That we would see through their confusion. We can see through their rebellion. That we may even be able to see through their screaming. That they're just, maybe most of the time, hurting on the inside. They are lonely and they may even be terrified though they would never admit it. It's because they're separated from you. Maybe many of us have never experienced that kind of fear or terror. And we thank you for that. But Father, forgive us for not having pity on those who do. So Father, we pray that we'd be strengthened. We pray that you would cause us to think often about these things. And that your spirit would convict us and that we would be determined once again, to share the gospel of Christ with those that we meet. Help us, Father, to find a way to do so. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.